This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest wi-fi access for customers bt's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy whatever your business bt's got your back search bt's got your back hello this is the red box podcast i'm matt jolly it is friday uh, coming up on today's episode it's been six seven weeks since the Prime Minister last did a press conference about coronavirus, uh, setting out all the latest data. So, we're doing next slide, please. We've assembled our own crack team of statisticians. Uh, we'll also speak uh, to a doctor and an epidemiologist to get the uh, picture on the front line. What exactly is going on as we head into the autumn? That's our big theme, which is coming up in just a moment. But first, as ever, it's our columnist panel. Today, with The Times' is Melanie Reid, and from the Financial Times, it's Jim Pickard. Let's start with, um, uh, let's try and work out what's going on with uh, social care, because depending on which paper you read today, there's a different plan. I mean, obviously, we should all just read the, the Times plan, uh, which is that uh, it says that Sajid Javid is pushing for a 2% increase in national insurance uh, to pay for NHS and social care funding. Um, uh, but then the Treasury only wants 1%, but then possibly Rishi Sinat might be persuaded. Uh, what's what's going on here, Jim? Because it, it's sort of interesting, the, the government finally come back to the idea of putting up this national insurance, just as... Lots of sort of wonky think tanky type people say this is probably the worst way to try and fund social care. Yeah, I mean, the first this issue has been on the table for so long. I mean, when Labour first put this forward, we were both young men and now we're both (laughs) closer to being in old people's homes ourselves. (laughs) It's becoming a much more pressing concern. And uh, you'll remember when Andy Burnham, who was the uh, health secretary at the time, proposed a levy on inheritance tax. The Tories jumped up and down and said, oh, it's a death tax. You know, this is appalling. They put out all these posters of gravestones and that kind of thing. And then in 2012, when Andrew Lansley was the health secretary for the Tories, he tried to put forward a plan of his own only to get squashed by David Cameron. It's one of those things that everyone, including the politicians, knows needs to be fixed, knows we need the money for it so we don't have this terrible kind of death lottery where unlucky people have to have their homes sold to pay for their social care. It looks like we're almost there. Um, I think, uh, despite what you just said, I think there is basically a consensus that it's going to be about a 1% increase in, in national insurance. It could be 1.25, was there or thereabouts. And, and interestingly, uh, you know, sources close to Javid actually denied this claim in the Times that he pushed for 2% rise. But I, I, I personally think it probably is pretty much true, because if you look at the maths of all this, the amount of money they need for social care is about £10 billion. And at the same time, the NHS also needs about another £10 billion 
to pay not only for the lingering coronavirus crisis, but also for the backlog of other non-coronavirus health issues they've got in hospitals, you know, cancer waiting lists and that kind of thing. So the question is, is going to, it's not going to be how they're going to do it. It's very clear it's national insurance, which is controversial. We can come back to that. But the question is whether it's going to be enough money. It is interesting, and I suppose it's one of those things. But at least, at least as they're coming up with a plan, that's better than the endlessly kicking it into the long grass. Uh, Melanie, your take on this, and obviously you're in Scotland, so it's a, it's a, it's already a different system. Uh, yeah. What's your take? Well, it's different up here, but I, I mean, what fascinates me about this is that it's, you know, for a prime minister with his eyes on the next election, um, isn't he, isn't he sort of balancing? Doesn't he have to balance? Whether whether it's the older Tory voters that he pleases, or whether he stings the younger ones, you know where where he takes the money from most of all, and isn't part of that balance the fact that um, older voters are probably going to vote for him anyway, uh, whatever he does, and it's a uh, he, he, he he sort of he he has to he has to kind of do a bit of dancing there. I. I'm fascinated to see what happens. I mean, in Scotland, we've we've been we've been feather bedded. You know, we've had we've had um, free free sort of free social care and free care at home, um, free personal care at home for those uh, the elderly and those that need um, for for many years now. Uh, obviously, obviously subsidised from Westminster, um, and it there have been exercises. Uh, Academic exercises showing that if it was if it was extended into England, the cost would be you know running it well over three billion pounds annually um, to do it to do the same thing in England. But it's um, it's 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 very good it's very good politics, even though the reality of it is that there is a, there is starvation. Um, it, it takes you it, it can take a year to get into the system. To get free personal care, by which time quite a lot of people sadly die. Um, so the, the the you know the the, the 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 public image isn't quite as as, as good as the reality. But it, it, it's great to see England moving moving this way. Um, but it uh, I, I'm fascinated to see how they will how they will they will they will balance tax. There's an interesting because the, 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 one of the ideas which has been floated, which seems to be off the table now, Jim, is that, that it might be a, a thing for just like over 40s to try and get around this issue of clobbering younger people to pay for older people. But then once you get into sort of hypothecating or linking the tax you pay to, you know, you getting something out of it, you then get into a very murky place, don't you? Because at various times, uh, people are paying in and they're not getting anything out. So, you know, when you're early 20s, you're probably not getting so much out. Start getting into your 30s, maybe you've got children at school, so maybe your taxes are, you know, you don't want to get into the situation where, um, you know, you have a school's tax, which is just aimed at people in their sort of 30s and 40s when their kids are at school, and then you have a old, you know, old age tax, which kicks in after that. It's, it's that, that becomes a really tricky political thing. Yeah, that generation, generational fairness issue is right at the heart of this, and... My understanding of it is is that this is going to be universal. I don't think they are going to limit the, the extra payments to the over 40s. I think it's going to be everyone. And the reason that the wonks find this national insurance in- increase um, unfair is because it's not paid by uh, elderly people, even if they have high incomes. It's something that, that you stop paying after a certain age. I think it's the mid-60s. And so if whereas if you did it on income tax or you did it on, you know, basically any other tax where people pay on income or wealth then then it would it would hit more broadly 
and so capital gains tax, for example. So that that is why the wonks think it's very unfair. And not least given that during the coronavirus crisis is young people who have borne the brunt of this, you know, staying at home, uh, sitting on furlough, for example, you know, not ex- exercising more than once a day in the first lockdown, blah, 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 even though they're basically uh, pretty invulnerable to um, coronavirus in the way that old people are massively vulnerable to it. So I think that's going to be a political issue around this. I think in my personal view on this is that the original plans for, for it to be paid for by inheritance tax had the advantage that, you know, it would be fair in the sense of the bigger your estate, the more you pay, it'd be completely progressive. And once you're dead, you can't spend your own money anyway. But that's, <laughs> that's betraying my own political views a little bit there. What about the um, the politics of, because obviously the, the part of the reason it's been getting so contentious is because the Conservatives are successive elections and probably not to put up income tax or national insurance or VAT. And clearly this is going to breach that. Um, Melanie, do you think that matters? I mean, given that Boris Johnson is is not necessarily someone who runs on his truthfulness keeping, and honesty, yeah. uh, necessarily. Exactly. No, um, and particularly I, I, because I, it's going to be difficult for Labour to make hay from it because it's a bit, they know this is a big problem. And frankly, if it's always sorted out for them, they can go to the next election not having to uh, come up with an alternative plan. Does it matter? Yeah. I don't think it matters. I mean, uh, for, as far as Labour is concerned, the, the Tories are playing in their playground, aren't they? You know, it's... it's uh, yeah, I, I don't think it matters. Everyone expects uh, Johnson to break his promises. And uh, and it's just a question for him. It's calling the political balance on it um, and, and, and trying to make it as fair as possible. I think the, the triple lock, doesn't that, doesn't that come in? You know, what's going to happen with the triple lock on pensions? <laughs> Yeah, uh, if pensioners get eight percent pay rise um, effectively. Uh, doesn't that make it even more unfair? Um, if uh, you know that, that'll make the walks even <laughs> even crosser. <won't> <laughs> I mean, I've got I've got two thoughts on that. Just to interrupt, I think one one is that national insurance they'll they'll plump for that instead of income tax because people don't generally understand it or think about it, even though it's basically a secret income tax that is paid on your income. And you occasionally you have these right-wing think tanks that say, maybe we should just sort of merge the two and make it clear to everyone how much tax they pay. And the politicians say, God, no, God help us. We can't possibly uh, be that <laughs> open and transparent. That'd be, that'd be a disaster. Um, and then the other point Melanie's making about this 8% increase in, in pensions. I mean, that is what they are meant to do on the triple lock. I think they will find a way to explain to the world um, slightly embarrassed way that this was a was a freak statistic or relating to, to COVID issues and that actually they'll, they'll try and find a lower way. But that is an issue they haven't yet resolved, isn't it? Yeah, no, and uh, yeah, lots of issues uh, for them to resolve. And then sort of in the real world, in, in terms of, you know, finances and how much money people actually have in their own pockets, uh, gas prices, are uh, big household bills uh, rises are coming down the track as well, Jim. Yeah, so this was our FT splash this morning by me and our energy editor, David Shepherd, which is he interviewed Centrica, uh, which is the owner of British Gas. And they warned that the soaring prices caused by a global supply crunch could raise household bills again and even force energy intensive businesses in the UK and Europe to curb activity this winter. And he wrote, which I had no idea, which was that the wholesale price of gas last month was literally five times higher than it was two years ago. And yes, a month ago, we uh, had that increase of, I think, 12% in the energy price cap for household bills. I think it was a time scoop. Uh, and it was the first major increase for a very long time. But the point of our story is that when Ofgem come around to looking at this again in February next year, they are likely to have to put through another big increase in the cap. Because although this energy price cap, first introduced by Theresa May, 
uh, obviously sounds like a relatively static thing. It does actually flex in line with wholesale gas prices, and therefore when they go up, it goes up. Um, the really interesting thing is that you'll all remember when Ed Miliband made energy bills like a massive political issue in around 2012, 2013, um, and then the issue sort of went away a bit. Interestingly, I hadn't realised this, the actual price of, of gas bills is still slightly lower than, than that peak of 2013, but that is about to change, I think, in the coming months. What's, what's driving that? Why is the, why is the price gone up? Sorry, I don't <laughs> pretend to really understand this, um, but why has the price gone up so much? Is it is it COVID related? Is it sort of they they cut back on supplies last year and then that's there's now a shortage now? I think there's been, I think there's been a particularly high demand in, in the last few months and uh, and I'm I'm literally reading this off what my energy colleague <laughs> wrote rather than <coughs> the depths of my own brain. He says a prolonged winter in Europe and Asia drains storage levels while countries are increasingly prioritising the use of gas over coal because of its lower carbon emissions. And Asian countries have been increasing imports of liquid natural gas as well. There you go. There we are. Well, who, who, who knew? Uh, <laughs> Melanie, um, just finally, I want to ask you about deer. You wrote about deer uh, in the Times this week. Uh, yeah, well, um, it's, it's deer are a, a, a pest in Scotland, um, but as we live in, in, in a, an era of sort of animal absolute, absolutism, um, <laughs> it's uh, <laughs> what with Geronimo and, uh, and rescuing animals from Kabul, it's, um, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's always delicate. And of course, in Scotland, the Greens have, gone, have done a deal with the SNP. So the Greens are now um, uh, in power. And... Uh, of course, green people don't like killing things generally, uh, or eating things even. So it's it's uh, fascinating because even though even though in the Green Manifesto, I think they said that they would be happy to, you know, they would they would be able to to look the other way while while the deer cull the deer cull went on. But uh, I wonder what their supporters will say. Uh, the uh, uh, they're having to, they're having to kill more basically because. Deer numbers in Scotland have doubled from um, to about a million from about half that uh, in the last thirty years ago, and and I live in I live in a national park and they're everywhere. They're absolute pests <laughs> running around everywhere, and um, you know the the but one man's beautiful Bambi is 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 somebody else's um, you know it destroys trees. Uh, and it, it eats eats all the land, and uh, the ga- the gamekeepers are angry because they don't want the extra cull because they want to kill the deer themselves. You see, so it's 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 you know lots of me- lots of different interests where yeah. deer are concerned. This is the politics of animals, Jim. It's just be uh, the amount of time that the government seems to take up thinking about all this stuff and. You know, there's animal sentience at one point, and then yeah, the Geronimo thing, which is run and run, obviously up until uh, this week. Uh, the, the the dogs and the cats in Kabul, which is one of the most ridiculous um, uh, sagas uh, to have unfolded recently. Uh, you know, we've got the badger cull still ongoing, which people are very cross about. Um, and mm. you know, I'm not sure it necessarily fits with the yeah, as the point that Money made in her column that necessarily fits with the uh, the SNP and the Greens' um, uh, reputation to go around shooting Bambi. Yeah, I mean, I don't have a particularly sophisticated take on the, the Scottish deer cull. I mean, I, I think fawns can be quite cute, but I think they also require mass slaughter every now and again. Um, and, and it's sort of beyond my bailiwick. I think what's fascinating in, in terms of the politics of the last couple of years is you're right. There are 
several very influential figures in government, one of them, of course, being Carrie, the, the wife of the prime minister, the other being Zach Goldsmith, who's a friend of both of them, who's uh, environment minister. And they, they take these issues very seriously indeed. And it's just, it's just one of those fascinating things of, you know, if, if Boris Johnson was surrounded by different people, would, would he take such a close interest? Would he prioritise some of this stuff? Um, I mean, you know, a lot of what they're doing is, is, you know, trying to improve biodiversity, trying to ensure animal rights. Um, I just think you, you get questions where the animal rights uh, rub up against human rights, of, of which the Afghan situation and, and that airlift was, was the most kind of eye-popping example ever, wasn't it, really? Yeah, it really was. It really was. But hopefully... it, it, it's so easy. It's so easy for it to tip into bonkers. It really is. <laughs> <laughs> That's that. That's just uh, summing up politics in general, Melody. Yeah, uh, <laughs> exactly. It so easily tips into bonkers. Jim Pickard and Melanie Reid then, of course, you can read Melanie in The Times every week, including on a Saturday, where you can also read my columnist. Get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast. Now it's time for next slide, please. 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 Yes, so we haven't had a COVID press conference for, I think, almost it'll be seven weeks on Monday since Boris Johnson's been joined by Chris Whitty and Patrick Vallance to crunch the numbers. So we thought we would do it for you just to get to the bottom of what is really going on. And so in a moment, we'll be joined by our very own Chief Medical Officer, Dr Rachel Clark, and Chief Scientific Officer, Rahina Matter. They'll talk us through what's happening on the front line. But first, crunching the numbers, time from the Times data team, Tom Calvert. He's here in the studio. He's got his laptop and everything <laughs> to talk us through what is going on with the data so uh, I suppose we just need to do this. Can I have the next slide, please? Right, so Tom, uh, this is uh, our um, occasional experiment in doing graphs on the radio. Uh, what is our first chart telling us? 
So this first chart is looking at the number of cases a day. And, and what we've done, we, we've compared it to where we were this time last year. Uh, not meaning to frighten people, but the comparison isn't that great at the moment. So about 34,000 cases a day are being recorded in the UK. Now, this time last year, we had about 1,300. So we've got about 26 times as many cases as last September. Now, for the first time in a little while, cases may be trending downwards slightly. But as ever, we're not clear whether this is a genuine fall or because not many people were tested over the bank holiday, having a bit too much fun. Now, a lot of people have been talking about festivals and whether they caused a spike in cases. And there are some very early signs that perhaps among 15 to 19 year olds, uh, cases have been uh, rising quite quickly in the, in the southwest and, and southeast. Um, now, of course, there has been a lot of talk about what's going to happen when schools go back and when universities go back later this month. Remember this time last year when there was that big spike caused by all the young people uh, going to university. Um, now, some people are looking at Scotland, where schools went back in August, and cases there have gone from about 1,000 a day to 6,000 a day in just a few weeks. However, it looks like this surge actually started before schools went back. So the jury's still out on what kind of effect uh, this will have. Um, it, it, Scotland has the highest rate at the moment with about 730 cases per 100,000 and London has the lowest at about 240 per 100,000. Uh, I should have said, actually, if you want to uh, follow along uh, while we're talking through the graphs, I have just tweeted them so you can actually see uh, the lovely graphs that, that Tom's produced. I, I mean, I suppose it, comparing it directly to this time last year, uh, the difference in testing uh, is, is is huge. In the, um, there, were, there was clearly COVID circulating last summer, but we didn't all have um, piles of uh, lateral flow tests in our, in our kitchens at the time. Um, it, I suppose the thing is when people say, oh, it's to do with festivals or it's to do with holiday makers, uh, to a large extent, we don't really know, do we? We don't really know, no. And, um, you know, we're still sort of, we sort of get clues from the data and it takes a few weeks to sort of disentangle what's actually causing these specific rises. Um, and, you know, the same with schools going back this week. It might be next week or the week after when we really start to see that effect coming through in the data. OK, um, uh, so that's uh, cases. But of course, the big difference between uh, this time last year is we've now had the vaccine and uh, millions of people have been vaccinated. Uh, and so it's all about, it doesn't really matter, in theory, if there were loads of cases around, if nobody then gets ill so let's move on to the next graph can i have the next slide please i've nearly uh, nearly did it myself then uh, let's take a look at hospital admissions then what's going on with hospital admissions yeah so you know as we were saying we, we don't want to say we're over cases because obviously each one can be quite inconvenient and, and can also cause lots of long-term health problems like long covid and so on but obviously there's less reason to be alarmed by these high case numbers than they used to be and this is exactly because fewer people are going to hospital that catch covid um, so, of course, nine out of 10 adults have now been vaccinated and this makes a really big difference. Nonetheless, hospital admissions now are still on the sort of the high side, especially compared to where we were last year. So about 930 people a day are being admitted to hospital. If you want the context, that's, you know, about 100, 110 a day uh, this time last year. However, of course, at the January peak early this year, we saw something like 4,400 a day. So we are much lower th than those sort of levels. Now, of course, there are some signs that admissions are starting to level off again. And this is a huge relief for the NHS because as well as COVID, which requires specialist care, people being sort of isolated in separate wards. Um, it's dealing with lots of catch-up operations, all the kind of care that was missed during the, the, the lockdowns and pandemic. And also there seems to be a very early wave of winter respiratory viruses like RSV, which is a disease which, which causes all sorts of problems among children. So the NHS is facing this sort of uh, three-way attack, if you will. Um, so it, it is a good thing that admissions are, are starting to level off and hopefully that pattern continues. 
how um and maybe we'll, we'll discuss this uh with wait for the moment how is it that um uh cases are how, how is it that hospital admissions are leveling the, the the connection the direct link between cases and and uh hospital admissions d- doesn't seem to to align in quite the same way is that down to the vaccine breaking that that link well, so the vaccine, it's a bit confusing. The link hasn't been broken. Uh, it's just its just now that, say, if, if 100 people catch COVID, um, now maybe uh, five will go to hospital, whereas before it was it was something like 20. That, that's a very rough figure. But, you know, so if you get a rise in cases, you will normally get a rise in admissions. But those those patterns don't match exactly. The bump, so you get, as you, if you sort of overlay, if I put the two... You've got the print off you bought in. If I hold them up, you can see that the deaths go up slightly after. Uh, so the emissions go up slightly after cases, uh, but the bump is not as big. Yes, exactly. So, so, yeah. so the, the, as a proportion. Um, uh, uh, so that's uh, what's happening with emissions. Can I have the next slide, please? Yeah, let's take a look now at the, and I suppose this is the one that really matters, mm. uh, the, um, the, the graph for, for deaths, deaths from coronavirus. Yeah, so unfortunately, we are seeing roughly 110 deaths a day across the UK from, on average, from COVID. Now, this is about 13 times more than the peak a year ago. We would just saw about eight deaths a day on average. But again, we are well below that January peak when we consistently were seeing sort of a thousand, uh, twelve hundred deaths uh, every single day. Now, of course, you know, with deaths, these numbers should fall if admissions start to fall, uh, and they they follow a similar pattern pattern to those. But um, earlier this month, there were some early signs that deaths were were rising among the very old again. And this led to all sorts of worries that perhaps vaccines weren't weren't as effective as they were initially. Um, and this is sort of prompting calls for, for booster jabs. But but of course, 100 deaths a day, even at this level, is not insignificant. Um, it, you know, if this level stayed the same for the next six months, we would end up with 18,000 deaths over winter. And you add to that these sort of expected uh, flu deaths, uh, which we could get. And flu can sometimes kill 20,000 people a year. So this winter could get very tricky, both for the NHS and indeed the whole country. And somebody's messaged in, uh, Bill's uh, texting and saying, can you find out whether the practice of logging deaths only of those dying within 28 days of a positive test is now out of date? We now test earlier and can keep dying patients alive for longer, so, test, so deaths may be going uncounted. The flip side of that, I suppose, is that when you've got fewer deaths, because this, this issue of dying from COVID versus dying with COVID, this is just someone who has died, who has previously tested positive in the previous 10 to 8 days. I mean, in theory, that's probably a bit too simplistic, you could test positive and then get run over by a bus. In in theory, yes. I, I mean, I think with all these Which things... Which actually, when, the... when deaths are really high, those those anomalies matter less. But when, when you've got lower numbers of deaths, that becomes a more complicated picture. I think the most important thing to remember is looking at the uh, excess mortality figures, which is where they, they compare the number of deaths that we're seeing at the moment to how many deaths we saw on average in the past five years. And at the moment, we are still seeing um, a few hundred excess deaths um, every every week. Um, and that that basically means that um, you know, well, we know that people are dying uh, from the pandemic, and, and it's not kind of like a, a I don't know fault of calculation of yeah, anywhere, yeah. yeah. And I was looking actually the, the um, I think last week some data came out from the ONS uh, which showed that uh, COVID was the ninth leading cause of data in July, accounting for two point four percent of all deaths uh in uh, in July uh, uh in England I think that was similar sort of picture in Wales. So it is a reminder that I mean it sounds it does sound like a lot 100 deaths a week but it is a reminder that you know people die do die all the time 
and you know dementia and alzheimer's was the i think was the leading cause of of uh, um uh, death in england about 10% of all deaths there so it's just trying to sort of put that into perspective but you're right if the overall excess death picture is showing then more people are dying than normal uh it so you know it is part of of the mix uh, just finally then the la- let's uh, let's do the last one can i have the next slide please yeah, so this last slide is a bit different. It's looking at uh, social mixing. Now, obviously, a key thing that might mean COVID doesn't spiral out of control over the next few weeks is all about our behaviour. Now, COVID spreads through people meeting through close contact, whether that's sort of conversation or uh, or, or skin-to-skin, skin-to-skin contact. Now, every week, researchers from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine ask everyone in Britain how many close contacts they make a day. Now, of course, it's not a perfect study. It's distorted by people who stay at home and don't meet anyone and those who meet dozens a day at work. But nonetheless, it is quite interesting and it shows that we're still seeing far fewer people than we used to. So before the pandemic, the average person uh, had close contact with about 10 others a day. Now, that plummeted to about two in April 2020, uh, when, of course, we went into the first lockdown. But even now, in late August, uh, we're still just seeing about four people a day on average. Um, What does this mean? Well, it suggests that we're perhaps a bit more cautious than we used to be, um, even after the great unlocking on July the 19th. You know, a lot of us are still working from home um, and, you know, that that may change over the next few weeks. But all of this means fewer opportunities for COVID to spread. Um, Now, a lot of what happens over the next few months could be down to human behaviour as much as anything. So that's something to bear in mind. It is interesting that the whole thing is about how long it takes to form a habit and break a habit. If you've spent months and months and months just without even realising that you're not seeing as many people, uh, it requires a bit of an effort to go out and meet them. Tom, thank you very much for talking us through uh, the data. Tom Calver there uh, from the Times data team. Uh, Like I said, you can see all the charts we've just been discussing. Uh, I've tweeted them and uh, there's really good trackers all on the Times uh, website as well for Times subscribers. You can go online and have a look at that. Right, in a moment, we're going to speak to our very own uh, Chief uh, Medical Advisor and Chief Scientific Advisor, Dr Rachel Clark and Rohini Matter. Uh, Matter will be here uh, in just a moment. This is Matt Jolly on Times Radio in association with GoDaddy, providing the helping tools you need to grow your business online. Can I have the next slide, please? Matt Chorley on Times Radio with GoDaddy, the official domain name, website builder and web hosting partner of Team GB. It's been almost seven weeks since Boris Johnson uh, did a press conference updating us on what was happening with coronavirus uh, with, obviously, Chris Whitty and Patrick Vallance. So we've, we've formed our own uh, expert panel. Our chief medical officer, we've uh, advisor, we've appointed as Dr Rachel Clark is with us. Hi, Rachel. Hello, Matt. And chief scientific advisor, uh, Rohini Matha, uh, epidemiologist at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Hi, Rohini. Hello. Uh, nice to have you with us. So, uh, Rachel, give us. We were just discussing how cases have gone up dramatically. Hospital admissions are up, but not by the same sort of proportions. What's the picture uh, on the front line in the NHS uh, for you? Well, the the positive news is that the vaccines are superbly effective. So although cases are rocketing at the moment, um, as Tom said, that's translating into a much smaller number of patients in hospital with COVID than we saw, for instance, in January this year, thank goodness, and also a much smaller number of deaths. But we're still, at the moment, we've got nearly... 8,000 patients in our hospitals in the UK with COVID, very, very sick indeed, many of them. Um, And we've only got about 100,000 acute hospital beds in the UK. So that's not that far off one in 10 of every 
acute hospital bed in Britain filled with a COVID patient. And the reason why that's such a problem is there is never any slack in the system in the NHS. We we know what, what it's like usually. If you think back to pre-COVID times, every winter we'd have a winter crisis, you know, patients on trolleys and corridors. Um, and there isn't 10% spare capacity in beds or crucially in staff, numbers of doctors and nurses and everyone else. So what that means is right now in in sort of height of summer, we are routinely seeing hospitals on black alert day after day after day. So that means there is not a single free hospital bed in the hospital. So my hospital routinely on black alert. And you normally just don't see that in the summer. And all those awful images that we're familiar with from winter months, patients stacked on trolleys in corridors, ambulances stuck on the forecourt, they can't leave to go to another 999 call because they can't offload their patient because there literally is nowhere for them to go to in the hospital. That's all happening now. And that matters because we don't want to be treating just COVID patients. We want to be treating everybody. And there is this desperately huge unmet need at the moment. All the patients who stayed at home over the 18 months of the pandemic or who couldn't see a doctor, their chemotherapy was postponed and so on, they're all pouring through the doors now. We're seeing loads of cancers that are being diagnosed much, much later than they should be. For example, sometimes um, this patient on diagnosis is told that their cancer's terminal and they're terribly unwell with it. So it's pretty desperate in hospitals at the moment. And um, every single patient who does not catch COVID means there is another bed, another doctor, another nurse available to treat all the other patients we're so desperate to treat. So the vaccines are outstandingly effective and safe. And, um, you know, I I desperately hope that everybody listening who is thinking about whether or not to get vaccinated and hasn't yet will very seriously consider it, chat to a doctor nurse, because the more of us who are vaccinated, the better able the NHS is to treat everyone. And we're just not able to do that at the moment because nearly one in 10 of our beds is taken up with COVID. I was going to ask you as well, because we've obviously got better at, uh, as you were saying, sort of treating uh, people with COVID and uh, particularly if they've been vaccinated, although they might end up in hospital, they might not have been as ill as they might otherwise have been. Does that create an issue that, that people are in, in hospital for longer and then hopefully get better and leave hospital? But it, it's just it, a blunt way of putting this. Essentially, this time last year, people were getting very ill, possibly dying quite quickly. Uh, and so um, there was potentially more capacity. Is, is there a problem with sort of essentially, I suppose, bed blocking is the phrase I'm, I'm sort of groping towards. The, yeah. Are people it, staying in hospital longer, which is ultimately a good thing, but that, that, that does pile even more pressure on? Yes, I, I see what you mean. So essentially, in in the previous waves, if you were really sick, you, you might die very quickly. And now we have treatments for COVID. We we're in a much better situation. So patients maybe stay for longer. Um, th- that's not that's not really what's happening um it a good way to think of it is to compare um a cancer patient who say needs a serious major operation that's 
the aim is to cure them of their cancer. So they will need to go to intensive care for perhaps one night, maybe two nights after their operation. Um, and then they're out again and that bed is available for someone else. With COVID, often patients now in this wave, but also in the previous waves, could be in an intensive care bed for two, three, four weeks, even months at a time. So we estimate that on average, a COVID patient is taking up one COVID patient 20 times the intensive care resources that one post-operative cancer patient would take 20 times wow. as much resources. And that's the, that's the, that's what's really behind the, the really misleading phrase, protect the NHS. It's never been about protecting the NHS. It's been about protecting our capacity to treat all those cancer patients. And we can't do that if we're clogged up to, to the hilt with COVID. Um, yeah. So that's that's a picture in the NHS. Uh, Rohini, let's bring you in as an epidemiologist. Uh, talk us through what is happening with the virus. And uh, there's obviously various points we're very concerned about different strains emerging. Is Delta still uh, the dominant one? And are, are there any signs of any others that we have to worry about, just in terms of the virus and the mutations and all that sort of thing? Yeah, so in the UK, Delta is still the main strain that is circulating. And a lot of the work that we're doing as epidemiologists is comparing the severity of Delta to the other strains, which are much less common now. And of course, as borders open up, we are keeping an eye out for other strains that are going to be coming in. And we're seeing in the news now reports of other strains in other countries, which uh, may be of concern. And um, what impact are you seeing uh, on the vaccine, uh, the efficacy of the vaccine, um, the concern that Delta might be, uh, that the vaccine might be less effective against the Delta variant? So we've seen that the vaccine has done um, brilliantly well in sort of in, in reducing the severity of the uh, the Delta variant. And so now the common wisdom is that um, the Delta variant is more um, infective, but less severe. And so we're hoping that uh, with uh, potential for boosters in the autumn that will continue to keep the Delta variant under control. Um, somebody's just sent, you know, I'm not sure uh, if either of you can uh, answer this. Somebody's just messaged in saying, how many COVID patients in hospital have been fully vaccinated? Is that is that data that we're aware of? Um, yeah, I, I I believe that it's around 40%. Um, so 60% of patients have either had no vaccines or maybe one vaccine and about 40% have are fully vaccinated. And, and, and that may suggest some people think that means the vaccine isn't effective, but it doesn't mean that. The, the reason we're still seeing a lot of patients who have been double vaccinated is because the vaccines, although they're incredibly effective, if you are, uh, say, 95% effective, that means one in 20 people who are vaccinated are still susceptible to catching the disease and potentially serious disease. If you're elderly and you catch it, um, you maybe will have a one in 10 percent. Um, uh, sorry, sorry. One in 10 chance of dying from COVID if you're very elderly. So, so that's the reason why a significant number of people are double vaccinated and in hospital. It's because millions of people have had the vaccine. So a tiny percentage of millions of people 
amounts to a lot of patients in hospital. Exactly right. And yeah, it's worth pointing out if, if, if uh, so, six, so 60% of people in hospital haven't been vaccinated, uh, but only 20% of adults haven't been vaccinated. So that's, that's the sort of the, the thing that you need to remember that the, they're making up a much bigger proportion of the, of the people who are in hospital. Exactly. And, and just, just finally, let's look ahead then into the autumn. Uh, what, is it, what is the autumn looking like? What are you both worried about? Rohini, first of all. So the major concerns that we are looking at um, on the epidemiology side are things around the reopening of schools and universities, as you mentioned before, the need for booster vaccinations and keeping track of breakthrough disease, and longer term, the interactions of COVID-19 disease with other chronic conditions and the long-term impacts of post-COVID. Uh, and uh, Rachel, what are you concerned about going into the, winter, into the autumn? Well, inevitably, every winter, demand goes up. Um, in the NHS, you get lots more respiratory illnesses in cold weather, for instance. Um, so we're expecting a flu wave this year on top of increasing numbers of COVID cases. And we're already at full capacity when you've got multiple hospitals on black alert. That's when people die unavoidably. That's when they don't get the treatments they need. They never get an ambulance and they die at home because the ambulances are stuck outside the hospitals. So for that to, that state to be happening now in the summer means that if nothing is done urgently, we're going to be careering into a winter where there is going to be an enormous amount of unnecessary, avoidable suffering and deaths as well, simply because we are not sufficiently resourced to treat everybody. And, and that's really incredibly distressing as a doctor facing that because we know it's coming just finally, um, sort of a bit of public service broadcasting this. Just in terms of the vaccination, there were some figures out from the ONS that said there was still this concern that younger people, especially, were reporting high levels of vaccine hesitancy amongst 16 to 29-year-olds. 8% uh, reported hesitancy. It's 5% amongst 30 to 50-year-olds and 2% for those over 50. Your your single pithy message about the about why people should get the, um, get the vaccine. Rachel, first. So... Why would doctors like me, who devote our lives to trying to care for people, why would we lie about the vaccines being safe? We just wouldn't do that. All we want to do is protect people from harm. So if you're young, you could still end up in intensive care. We've had teenagers dying in my intensive care. Just don't let it be you. Please trust the doctors. We're not going to lie to anybody. The vaccines are so safe. Rahini? Just to add to that, that, you know, the the pandemic has, has shown such stark health inequalities across the country and internationally with people who are vulnerable, from minority ethnic groups and deprived areas having such high levels of outbreaks. Vaccination amongst younger people can really help um, resolve uh, some of these disparities and improve health equity for all. Terrific. Thanks so much, so much for joining us. And we've had lots of mentions of people just saying uh, they were glad to get sort of some of these things clear and Amanda saying, I hope the anti-vaxxers are, are listening. So uh, really good to speak to you. Dr. Rachel Clark there, palliative care doctor, uh, and uh, Rohini Matha, epidemiologist at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Uh, thanks for joining us on Times Radio. And before that, we heard from Tom Calver at the time uh, from the Times data team, crunching the numbers for us. And uh, like I said, you can see all the charts we were discussing. Um, I've tweeted them and you'll be able to uh, look at all of the trackers they have on the times.co.uk. 
That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. We bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.